Good morning, my name is Rose and I'm reading the second Bible reading for us today which continues our sermon series from the Sermon on the Mount. So it's from Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a bit hard. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because that was my reaction too. If I haven't met you, my name's Pete Stacey, and it's, it's great to be here. And on this particular morning, I'm actually thanking God for the, the aircon. I didn't get out to do a run this morning. I haven't got that internal heat in my body yet. I see that. Oh. Um, great to be here. Uh, there are not many games where you can get a perfect score. Can you think of some? Like most games, you win, win by just getting the highest score, but... Any games you think of, we get a, a you can get a perfect score. Ten pin bowling. Ten pin bowling. That's the one I was thinking about. Like about twice a decade, I have a game, and a perfect score is three hundred. It's it's supposedly possible. Um, so far, my best score ever is one hundred and forty-six. Not even close. But, but apparently, that's okay. Um, but there are a few rare individuals who have achieved 300 in a single game. That's impressive, isn't it? Strike, strike, strike every single time. But imagine this. Imagine if you had to get a perfect 300 in a game of 10-pin bowling to get into heaven. Wow. Or worse, imagine if you had to get a perfect 300 every single day of your life to get to heaven. Or worse, imagine if we had to be perfect. Like every day. Look at verse 48, the last verse. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that really what God expects? It's easy to feel defeated and hopeless. There's no wriggle room in perfect, is there? It's impossible. What did Jesus really mean? Or is he somehow sort of exaggerating? You know, he, he really means we just need to do our best. I don't know about you, but I found that the Sermon on the Mount really confronting. 
to my kind of middle class, comfortable Christianity in a country that, globally speaking, is still really safe for Christians. So friends, let's ask God to help us understand what Jesus really meant here so that we can enjoy the marvellous blessing of obeying him. Let, let's pray to King of truth, please speak to us the word we need to hear. Remove the darkness of our hearts and bring your light to bear. King of truth, please speak to us and shape us by your word. Fill our hearts. Renew our minds, we pray. Amen. The opening words of verse 38, they're sounding quite familiar now, aren't they? You have heard that it was said. This is the fifth, and, and we're going to look at the sixth as well, time that Jesus starts uh, like this, as he corrects the Pharisees' misrepresentation and twisting of God's law to suit themselves. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now we find this law in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19, and the Deuteronomy passage in particular shows that this command was given to the judges of Israel. When there was a, a dispute or an alleged offence, uh, they were to make a careful examination, exact words from that passage, careful examination, before applying this law. And it prevented the kind of escalation of violence that happens when vengeance is unrestrained in the hands of the victim or their family. This kind of gets worse and worse. This law was a powerful deterrent to assault or to revenge attacks. I mean, if you were going to seriously hurt someone, you had to run the risk of being found guilty and then suffering precisely the same hurt you had just dished out. The punishment matched the crime. Now, it wasn't all that long before a financial penalty was accepted as a substitute for a literal eye for eye or tooth for tooth. In fact, we still have this same idea in our compensation laws and insurance policies and various body parts and injuries are given dollar values. So what's the problem with it? What kind of sinful twisting of the law was Jesus correcting? Well, people like the Pharisees and the average Israelite and people like me and you tend to make sure the law is applied in our favour. And if we've been wronged, we try to get as much as we legally can in the lawsuit. If we're in the wrong, we do all we can, with the help of solicitors and lawyers these days, uh, to avoid as much punishment as possible. In other words, we try to manipulate the, manipulate the law for personal gain or for personal protection. And you can probably think of examples that just... Uh, Made your blood boil. When I was a young school teacher, some kids actually in my old school where I grew up were mucking around with the flagpole uh, after school hours of trespassing. They managed to snap the rope and uh, the brass toggle that clips on the flag whipped down and uh, struck one of the kids in the forehead. He was really serious injured. And they managed to successfully sue the school. They were trespassing. Um, and it was a horrible injury. Um, but the family received a substantial payout. I'm going to imagine, though, if, if God used that kind of approach on us, making sure he applied his own law in his own favour, if God treated us as our sins deserve, 
wouldn't stand a chance. But God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he wants us, see verse 48, to be perfect as he is perfect. Perfectly wise and balanced justice accompanied by extravagant mercy. The law was an external motivation to do what is right. But Jesus wants his followers to be righteous, to internalise righteousness, not just to do what is righteous when we really, really have to. It's a matter of the heart. And when we become a Christian, perfect is our new family dress code. That's what our Father looks like. That's what we're destined for. That's what, with God's help, help by His Spirit, we are becoming as He sanctifies us. And by God's grace, that is what we will be on the last day. To help us grasp the meaning, Jesus then gives us four brief examples, and they all involve some level of conflict. Insults, lawsuits, forced labour, and rights of ownership. Now, to understand them properly, let's just recap a bit of the context of the Sermon on the Mount so far. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by defining what it meant to be blessed uh, by God. His examples, uh, back in the first 12 verses, really turned the popular expectation of blessed upside down. Now, listen to his summary at the end. Uh, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all, say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me, he says. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he went on to talk about salt and light, us being salt and light in the world. And he said this, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and, get this bit, Glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, they see the difference that Jesus makes in your life and my life, and they want it. They, they want to know about Jesus. They may be saved. And then he looks straight into this long section that we're finishing today about understanding the Old Testament laws rightly. So there's three things to keep in mind as we look at these last uh, few verses. One, persecution is normal for anyone who genuinely follows Jesus. Secondly, when we suffer, our goal is not to get even, not to get revenge, but to honour God who will reward us. And thirdly, when other people see our radically different behaviour, we point them to the Jesus we follow so that they just might become Christians too. And be forgiven. Well, let's have a look at Jesus' examples. Uh, there's four of them. Verse 39 is the first one. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. <laughs> do that to myself. Don't know why. Uh, the focus is actually not on violence here, but on insults. When harsh words fail, a backhand slap on the cheek was a ghastly insult in the culture of the day. Horrible. It's a physical expression of utter contempt for another person. How does Jesus want his followers to respond? Turn to them the other cheek also, he says. Now, of course, Jesus did this literally when he was tortured before the crucifixion, didn't he? 
But most of us will experience it in much more subtle ways. Now, if someone insults you because you're a Christian, and it comes in all sorts of ways. I remember a, a fellow working at the steelworks who was a fairly new Christian, and he was about to have his first bite of lunch. His bloke just slammed him on the shoulder and said, you haven't said grace. As a little subtle digs and a bit of fun. But sometimes those subtle digs can be quite personal, don't they? What does Jesus want us to do? Take it. It's normal for the Christian. Don't retaliate and defend ourselves. Turn the other cheek. It doesn't mean we should try to kind of uh, get another insult, you know, like, come on, have another go, mate. You know, like being smug and taunting them. Um, instead, have compassion on them because they don't yet know Jesus. And if we do speak back, use words that are kind and respectful. As Paul says in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. God can use our good behaviour to warm the coldest heart. The second example is this. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, uh, hand over your coat as well. Now, back in Exodus chapter 22, it says this. If you take your neighbour's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because the cloak is the only covering your neighbour has. Keeping your coat, or your cloak, that was your right, by law. But Jesus is calling us to even let go of our rights so that our lives will be a radical witness to others. In the church in Corinth, the Christians were starting to have lawsuits against each other. And Paul says that we should prefer to be wronged in court rather than fight for our rights in a way that discredits the gospel and brings shame to the name of Jesus. Once again, Jesus is the supreme example. Rather than use his rights as God's son for his own advantage, what did he do? He humbled himself, chose to become a servant, and then chose to become a sacrifice. He paid for our sins on the cross. That is extravagant mercy. Friends, that is radical love. He calls us to that kind of radical love so others can see that Jesus makes a difference in our lives. And he can change their lives. The third example says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go from two miles. Now, Roman soldiers uh, were allowed to force a person to carry their equipment. For a Roman mile, that's a thousand paces. That's about two laps around the running oval. And I reckon they would have loved it. Yeah, you're a Roman soldier and you saw a Jew or a Christian. <laughs> Carry my pack, buddy. You're kind of fun as a soldier, isn't it? The Jews hated it and resented it so much. What's Jesus say? Rather than resent it, rather than grumble, do it cheerfully. Even volunteer to do more than what was demanded just to be a blessing. Imagine the impact this might have had on a Roman soldier. Outstandingly different behaviour, isn't it? I once heard a testimony of a man who said he came to faith in Jesus because of how much his son's behaviour had changed when he became a Christian. 
Instead of answering back and grumbling in the home, he began to obey his parents and offered to do even more than they asked. Friends, many here have unbelieving family members, unbelieving friends. Love them. Serve them. Let's go the extra mile and pray that God might use us, our actions, and even our words, to bring them to Christ. The last example Jesus highlights is is with our rights of ownership. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Uh, Deuteronomy 15 provides background for this. I'll read this out. I think it's very helpful um, in understanding exactly what Jesus is aiming at here. If anyone is poor among you, your fellow Israelites, in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them, Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Jesus is saying here, quite clearly, go out of your way to care for the poor and needy. There may be all kinds of reasons why they are poor and needy, but that doesn't justify us having a hard heart or a stingy attitude or a stubborn refusal to help. Everything we have, we have at the mercy of God. It's a gift from Him. So, friends, we are to use what He has blessed us with for his glory and the blessing of others. Now this passage, where Jesus is saying here that uh, uh, we're to give to one who asks you, he's, he's not saying that we're to be dormant. Jesus is not like a mechanical obedience where we give irresponsibly to every request until we literally have nothing left. Now, like I could stand at the door, if I preach this differently, I could stand at the door and just ask you for everything you've got on the way out. And if you read it as it says it, you be obeying Jesus by giving it all to me. Jesus not saying that. He's talking about how we respond to conflict. And demands, especially from unbelievers, especially from those who are genuinely needy. Jesus is saying, even though they might behave badly towards you, behave Christianly back. Don't allow their attitudes or their actions to determine our attitudes and our actions. Instead, Respond kindly. Give freely. Go the extra mile. Be generous. As Romans 12 puts it, do not be overcome by evil. Rather, overcome evil with good. And God can use our good behaviour to draw them to himself. In verse 43, this is the last time Jesus says it. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and Hate your enemy. That's actually a misquote. The first part is straight from Exodus 19. But the second part, 
is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Now Jesus said it because the people had heard it. Where from? The religious teachers. It was their selfish extension of the law. Love your neighbour. Oh, sure. <laughs> that means I can hate anyone who I don't consider to be my neighbour. And they'd come up with that saying. Friends, that's why Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that one? In Luke chapter 10. Yeah, to show that neighbour means whoever is around you, not just the people I like. You're not familiar with the story? Google it. It's a great read. <laughs> so the religious leaders had taught people, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. And we know that they taught this, not just because of their behaviour, but because of manuscripts that have been found in some ancient Jewish communities, such as Qumran. Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. What does Jesus say in response? Verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God himself is good to the righteous and the unrighteous by giving them sunshine and rain. We are to do good to all people like he does. That shows that we're actually his children because we look like him by loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And once again, Jesus is not calling us to do something that he hasn't done. His suffering and death are the most extraordinary example. He endured mocking, gross insults, physical abuse, an unjust trial, and finally death. And during his ordeal, he was respectful, patient, even prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them. Romans 5 says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, such love. As I prepare this study on this passage, and again as we did our study on Thursday night, I felt like the next two verses were just too close to me. Verse 46. If you love those that love you, what reward will you get? I don't even tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. I feel like I'm, I'm a lot like that. Tax collectors in Israel were not respected or like They worked for the Romans and they were often dishonest. Uh, but they still loved their own friends. And pagan simply means non-Jews, people who didn't recognise God as their God. And yet they're friendly to their own people. Friends, our love must go deeper than that. Earlier in his sermon, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Heavy words. And now at the conclusion of this section, Jesus says, our standard of behaviour must be outstandingly higher than people of the world who don't yet know him. In fact, God's standard for his people is there in verse 48, isn't it? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is what God requires of us. And at the same time, God knows we are far from perfect. 
that we are imperfect sinners. But instead of lowering his standard to make it achievable for us to earn our way to heaven, he provided a solution for sin in the blood of Christ. Thanks be to God for sending Jesus to be our Saviour so that our sins could be forgiven, our hearts washed clean, our filth removed. Is an extraordinary exchange takes place when we put our faith in Jesus. He takes our sin on himself, his death on the cross, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. We are clean in the sight of our perfect holy God. So if you put your trust in Jesus and we're right with God, we're perfect in God's sight because of Jesus paying the price for our sin, how should we now live? Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's our goal, not to gain salvation. Jesus has done that for us. But as an expression of gratitude and trust in Christ, we trust him as saviour for eternal life. And we follow him as Lord in life. What's more? He gives us his Holy Spirit to teach us, guide us, and make us more like Jesus. And as Philippians 1.6 says, he has promised to complete the good work he has begun in our hearts.